You're back with the Hospital Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Gil Parat. Today's topic is acute liver injury from drugs other than acetaminophen. The world of drug-induced liver injury is divided into the causes we know are predictable, such as acetaminophen toxicity, which is a dose-dependent toxicity. And then there are the drugs that are unpredictable, and we call those unpredictable liver injuries idiosyncratic injuries. Those of us in the medical field appreciate the easy-to-understand adverse events like hypoglycemia from insulin or hypotension from blood pressure-lowering drugs. Idiosyncratic injuries are frustrating because we can't predict them and the results can still be devastating. Half of the cases of acute liver failure in the United States are from drug-induced liver injury. Acetaminophen-induced hepatotoxicity is by far the most common cause of drug-induced liver failure in the United States. But since dose-dependent acetaminophen toxicity really is an entire topic unto itself, I will have to save it for another day, and the focus for this talk is on idiosyncratic liver injuries. So what other medications besides acetaminophen do we prescribe that are the highest risk for causing drug-induced liver injury? Antibiotics, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are also big players, and there are several other drugs that can cause liver injuries, but antibiotics are the most commonly associated class of drugs after acetaminophen. And currently, the single most common drug associated with drug-induced liver injury is amoxicillin clavulanate, which most of us call augmentin. Other individual antibiotics we also have to be particularly worried about are isoniazid, sulfur antibiotics such as trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, and nitrofarantoin. And the source for that information is an article titled Drug-Induced Liver Injury in the January 2014 Mayo Clinic Proceedings, where they also say that those patients having drug-induced liver failure have a very poor transplant-free three-week survival of only 27%. And the key word there is failure which is not the same as having a liver injury from a drug or supplement, in which case recovery is expected for most of those with an injury that does not progress to failure. Now, for those patients having an idiosyncratic drug-induced liver injury, it is critical to decide if that patient is having an immune-related liver injury or a non-immune injury. So let's talk about the differences. When it comes to immune-related liver injury from a drug, it tends to have a unique clinical characteristic such as eosinophilia, rash, autoantibodies, and these patients often have elevated anti-nuclear or anti-smooth muscle antibodies. Immune-mediated injury is often rapid in onset within weeks of taking the medication, and a patient can rapidly re-injure the liver if they take the medication or supplement again in the future. So why is it so important to see if it's an immune-related injury or not? Well, there is a treatment option of using corticosteroids for autoimmune-like drug-induced hepatitis, 
non-immune drug-induced liver injury does not usually improve with corticosteroids. Okay, so what are the presenting symptoms of acute liver injury and acute liver failure? Jaundice or dark urine, elevation in the serum bilirubin, fatigue, weakness, nausea, poor appetite, abdominal pain, fever, rash, or itching. No symptoms may occur, and the liver blood test abnormalities may just be found incidentally. There are several drugs out there that we prescribe where we screen for liver abnormalities, hoping we catch the problem before symptoms start. Let's talk about timing of presentation a little bit. One of the great challenges is that the timing of liver injury from a drug can be variable. Immune-related injury can happen within days or several weeks. Non-immune injury may take up to a year. Most of the presentations of drug-induced liver injury are within five days to three months. And another great challenge is that a person can be taking multiple drugs or multiple dietary supplements, and it's hard to know what specifically is the culprit in those cases. There's been a lot of press lately about supplements causing liver injuries and liver failure and even death. There was a New York Times article in December of 2013 titled, Spike in Harm to Liver is Tied to Dietary AIDS, which said that dietary supplements account for nearly 20% of drug-related liver injuries. There were some other interesting statistics buried in that article that said approximately 55,000 supplements are sold in the United States and only 170 have been studied to determine their side effects. However, the point was also made by a prominent hepatologist that the majority of the supplements on the market are generally safe. Prescription drugs still cause the majority of the liver injuries that are happening. Now, allow me to diverge for a second on a tangent and talk about some considerations regarding viral hepatitis. Of course, nearly every patient with acute liver disease is going to get a viral hepatitis panel sent off. It is often not initially obvious somebody has a drug-induced liver injury, so we are often looking for other explanations in that initial workup. And going back to the Mayo Clinic Proceedings article from January 2014 that was titled Drug-Induced Liver Injury, the author state, and I'm quoting him here, hepatitis E can masquerade as a drug-induced liver injury in 3% to 13% of the cases. That's the end of the quote. And many of the viral hepatitis panels don't test for hepatitis E. But if we are considering drug-induced liver injury as an etiology, it turns out that hepatitis E can present similarly So we should test for it because you may think it's a drug-induced liver injury, but it really could be a hepatitis E infection. Now, let's talk about the differential diagnosis, which is always large in patients presenting with liver injury. Every once in a while, we see patients that have liver function test patterns that cause our minds to go straight for the most common explanation without making a differential diagnosis list in our heads or on the chart. 
the bilirubin alkaline phosphatase and the AST to ALT ratio look like it must be an obstructive stone and so we get an ultrasound but see no biliary issues. So we get HIDA scans, ERCPs and other testing to try and prove our failed hypothesis must be correct. One of the many, many different ways drug-induced liver injury can present is similar to obstructive jaundice. A cholestatic picture of drug-induced liver injury resembles bile duct obstruction. The point is, if your initial leading diagnosis is not making sense, you must seriously start considering other possibilities quickly. And if you are considering a drug or supplement as a possible etiology in that differential diagnosis, you want to go to a certain website that's called livertox.nlm.nih.gov. And the website explains, and I will quote it here, among the thousands of drugs available today, several hundred have been linked to liver injury. But the clinical pattern of liver injury is diverse and can mimic almost any form of liver disease. Drug-induced liver injury can present in a pattern that is similar to acute hepatitis, chronic hepatitis, acute liver failure, biliary obstruction, or fatty liver disease. To keep track of which drugs cause liver injury and what pattern is typical of each agent is challenging, even to the most dedicated subspecialist in the area. And that's the end of the quote. But the searchability of that website is literally awesome. Just plug in the generic drug name and it gives you the information known about hepatotoxicity and the drug or supplement. It should be stated that often we are making the diagnosis of drug-induced liver injury with high degrees of certainty, but not total certainty. There are also many confounding factors that can make it very difficult to be sure there is a specific drug or supplement causing the problem. It reminds me of a quote by Voltaire where he said, Doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. Now let's move on to treatment, which is complex, but at a minimum, I want you to keep the following points in mind. First and foremost, discontinue the potentially offending drug immediately, particularly if the patient's drug list contains an antibiotic, NSAID, statin, dietary supplement, or acetaminophen. And don't re-challenge the patient with a drug unless it is an essential drug to keep them alive, in which case I would have a hepatologist oversee that re-challenge. And then remember to put the offending drug on the patient's allergy list if you've identified it as potentially liver toxic for that patient. I briefly mentioned corticosteroids for autoimmune drug-induced liver injury in about 20 to 40 milligrams of prednisone tapered over about six months is reasonable, but the length and dose is usually decided by a hepatologist. Now let's talk about N-acetylcysteine. And it is our first consideration when us medical providers see a Tylenol overdose and we are attempting to prevent liver failure from acetaminophen. Some of you will also remember that I talked about its antioxidant properties in the podcast I did on contrast-induced nephropathy. It should be in the front of our minds for non-acetaminophen drug-induced liver injury or failure, particularly if we catch it early enough. 
There is data to support this as N-acetylcysteine has been shown to improve transplant-free mortality in a randomized controlled trial. And the source for this is from the journal called Gastroenterology. And the article is titled, N-acetylcysteine improves transplant-free survival in early-stage non-acetaminophen acute liver failure. It was published in Gastroenterology in September of 2009. And when it comes to the issue of encephalopathy in acute liver failure, it turns out we can't think of it the same way we think about our chronic cirrhotic patients. Chronic liver failure is not the same thing as acute liver failure. And a New England Journal of Medicine article titled Acute Liver Failure from December 26, 2013, makes the point when the author state, I'm going to quote him here, Treatments that are used in chronic liver disease may be inappropriate in acute liver failure, in particular the role of neomycin, rifaximin, and other non-absorbable antibiotics is unclear, and treatment with lactulose is potentially deleterious. When it comes to coagulopathy during fulminant hepatic failure, you don't need to prophylactically give fresh frozen plasma FFP should be reserved only for active bleeding or some invasive procedures. And transfer to a transplant center is needed for those whose liver injury progresses to liver failure. So those are all treatment considerations that are critical to keep in mind. But what else can I say about this topic? There is an article titled, Liver Renewal, Detecting Misrepair and Optimization Regeneration, that is in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings that starts on page 120 of the January 2014 issue. And the article is not specific to drug-induced liver injury. As we all know, there's plenty of other causes of cirrhosis and there's liver cancers that are commonly associated with advanced liver damage. So not specific to acute liver failure. But the article is interesting in that it says, and I'll quote them, the liver can fully regenerate after removal of 70% of its mass, even after repeated hepatectomies. And I just find that ability to fully regenerate incredible. And thankfully, most of us who went to college, which is great for your brain but bad for your liver, have regenerated just fine after our late night drinking episodes. But there are those that don't regenerate their livers and liver failure ensues. And the article gets into the potential therapeutic targets to improve regeneration. So pretty neat to read. But most of us remember the story of Greek mythology about Prometheus, who was looking out for us humans and gave us fire against the wishes of Zeus. And he paid for it dearly. Prometheus was chained to a rock where each day an eagle was sent to feed on his liver, which would then grow back to be eaten again the next day. And some speculate that the Greeks might have known the liver has some ability to regenerate. And, of course, in this day and age, stem cells sound promising for future treatments, but we are not there yet. Though, as Maddie Stepanek said, who was an American poet and highly evolved soul who died at the age of 14, and Maddie published several books, all of which reached the New York Times bestseller list, and he said, Even though the future seems far away, it is actually beginning right now. 
You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Perrot.